Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan. And I'm Gavin Cooper. Hello, welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of the podcast. This episode is about sickle cell disease and we speak to Perla Elisaru, who is one of our red cell consultants at UCLH. In this episode, we talk about what happens when a patient has a vena-occlusive crisis and what the immediate treatment should be in terms of adequate pain control. And in particular, trusting patients' description of pain and how it is a subjective measure, but that adequate pain control does shorten patient admissions. We also talk about how the treatment for sickle cell disease has changed and improved with use of hydroxyurea. And then we go into talking about the Red Cell Exchange Programme. UCH is one of the largest automated red cell exchanges in the country and maybe even Europe. So during this podcast, we also talk about chest crisis and how the use of something simple like a spirometer can help increase deep breathing and potentially stop a patient from needing an ITU admission. And we also talk about the future where gene therapies are going to become another important way of helping to cure sickle cell disease alongside of uh, allogeneic transplants. Cool. Okay, so thank you, Perla, for giving up your time today and coming to talk to us. And we just want to firstly start off by, could you give us an overview of what sickle cell disease is? Sure. So sickle cell disease is the most common inherited blood disorder. Patients are born with it and they carry it for as long as they live. So it's inherited through a specific pathway or pattern, which we call autosomal recessive. That means both parents need to be carriers of the sickle cell gene in order for the child to be affected by the disease. And if you have two parents who are carriers with every pregnancy, there is one in four chances for the baby to be to have the full-blown sickle cell disease. And essentially what happens in somebody who has the genetic defect is the production of an abnormal hemoglobin molecule which we call sickle hemoglobin or HBS. And this abnormal hemoglobin molecule will cause sickling of the red cells at the time when the oxygen is released from the hemoglobin molecule. So hemoglobin is responsible to bind the oxygen and travel it all around the body. But sickle hemoglobin, once it's got rid of the oxygen and Once the oxygen is released to the tissues, the deoxygenated form of the hemoglobin causes sickling of the red cells. Now, the sickle red cells are very rigid, they're non-flexible, and they lose their ability to pass flexibly through the tiny capillaries. Now, this is a problem, obviously, as you can imagine, it causes blockages of the vessels, of the small vessels, of the tiny vessels, but it doesn't stop there. The sickling of the red cells triggers a whole cascade of different inflammatory reactions. So you get activation of the white cells, of the platelets, and all those cells, they become more sticky to the lining of the capillaries. And the whole process is what really gives rise to what we see on the wards or in clinic or in A&E, our patients coming with severe pains in the bones and damage of their organs. And that's really the consequence of blockages of the blood flow into all those structures. So whether that's the bones or the organs. So blood flow interruption, tissue hypoxia, and the consequences will then be So we're seeing ischemic damage potentially each time someone has a crisis. Yes. Yes. What helps decide 
or defines when someone has a severe disease or not. You know, will there be people who live with the disease much more easily than others? Mm. Others who have much more painful crisis, for example. I mean, what kind of decides yes. that? I think it's very subject- subjective. You're absolutely right, and there will be the patients who would be in pain for the majority of the. Uh, days in the month, but they would want to deal with the pain at home and they would be able to deal with the pain at home, either through home remedies and psychological support, family support. And there would be others who wouldn't be able to cope with even less pain at home and they would be coming to the hospital to be treated with more potent painkillers that they can't take at home. So we always have to take in consideration the patient's threshold and we cannot dictate who you know should feel the pain and, we sh- and who shouldn't and who should be able to deal with X amount of pain and who shouldn't be able to deal. But generally speaking, somebody with a severe disease would be somebody who would have repeated admissions for treatment of the sickle cell crisis. So once every two, three months would be severe enough um, for us to be recommending treatment with either hydroxyurea. So hydroxyurea would be first line. And then if that doesn't settle the, the pains, then we would have to think about it. Uh, red select changes. So what is severe is a very difficult question to answer and every patient is different, yes. But we're looking at admissions and we're looking at the use of painkillers at home, specifically the use of opioids at home. So if somebody uses things like codeine, tramadol or oramorph and above in terms of potency for more than 50% of the month and... So you can use them many different ways to kind of assess this, Yeah. yeah. How have patients always been treated in the same way? Or could you give us an overview of what yeah. treatment's available for patients okay. and from a while ago and now? Okay, so, so the treatment of sickle cell disease has changed hugely within the last 20, 30 years. So sickle cell disease has been around for centuries. It was first discovered in, in the 19th century. The first treatment introduced was hydroxyurea. We have experience with hydroxyurea or hydroxycarbamide for more than three decades now. And we know that in the majority of the patients, it can lead to less severe disease. So it can cause less frequent and less intense sickle pains. It also prevents development of certain organ damage. So it minimizes the risk of acute chest syndrome. Then after hydroxycarbamide, the um, use of blood came to light. So as you know, in a lot of different situations, we treat patients with blood transfusions in the acute setting. So if they come in with acute chest syndrome or any other acute complication which involves the function of a vital organ, so acute stroke, acute chest syndrome, acute renal failure, acute liver failure, or even sepsis or multi-organ failure, the treatment is an acute emergency red cell exchange or a top-up transfusion. So obviously the the red cell exchange is is something that has been used more and more. So initially people were used to just simple top-up transfusions 
Could you explain what an exchange is? So an exchange is uh, the procedure whereby the patient is transfused with non-sickle cell blood and the, and the patient's um, sickle blood is removed. So there is a direct exchange of the patient's blood, which is full of sickle cells, with normal non-sickle cell blood, which is full of healthy red cells. So this can be done in the form of a manual exchange. Um, so literally the patients have two cannula inserted and through one cannula they receive the blood and through the other one they have their blood venesected or taken out and this should happen in a way that the volumes are not shifted so the patient does not become hypovolemic or hypervolemic because this can cause problems. At UCH, we have the lar largest um, automated red cell exchange service for sickle cell patients in the country. I think the biggest or one of the biggest certainly in Europe as well. So obviously the benefit of an automated red cell exchange as opposed to manual exchange is time required for the procedure. So with an automated red cell exchange, you're done um, an exchange almost the whole blood volume of a patient within two, three hours, as opposed with... So we're kind of um, talking like maybe 10 units or something like yes, that for a patient? Yes, so 8 to 10 units, depending on the weight and height of the patient and depending on the, your starting point of the sickle hemoglobin and where you want to get it to. So, for example, if, you, if somebody has never been exchanged before and um, is coming in with an acute chest syndrome and you want to bring the sickle hemoglobin from... 95% down to 15%, you would need much more blood to do that, but roughly with every exchange between 8 and 10 units of blood are needed. Hydroxycarbamide is a preventative treatment, so it's a long-term treatment to minimize the, the risks of uh, repeated and severe vasoclusive crisis, acute chest syndrome and organ damage. And then we have another preventative type of treatment which are which is the regular red cell exchanges. So the regular red cell exchanges are given anything between four to six weeks and the aim of this program would be to keep the sickle hemoglobin less than 30% at all times. Over the last 10 years, um, at least, there have been significant medical advances in the field of sickle cell disease, thankfully. So we're starting now to deviate from just the hydroxyurea and blood and painkillers. So we are now looking into um, drugs which can stop them, the sickling process. It can make the sickle cells less sticky and therefore, hopefully, drugs which can make them, you know, the frequency of the sickle cell crisis much, much less, less frequent and less intense. So we have clinical trials going on internationally and we have a couple, we have two of the biggest trials open here at UCH as well. So one is the GBT drug and the other one is the Imara drug. They're both tablets which work in, diff in, in, in different ways. So the two are different, you know, they follow different pathways of action. But ultimately, what we are hoping they will do is to minimize pain, increase the hemoglobin, because a lot of our patients are chronically anemic, and um, hopefully play a role in the prevention of organ damage that we are seeing as our patients grow older. Uh, we're now started or starting seeing more and more 
complications arising from the years of because them people are carrying the disease the because disease. people are yeah. living longer with the disease. So you're learning more and more about it. Yes, absolutely. So it looks much brighter, the future. And we also have gene therapy on the horizon. You've heard about gene therapy in thalassemia already, so the same concept and the same treatment will be applicable to patients with sickle cell disease as well. It's going to be more tricky to do as a treatment, to apply as a treatment than in thalassemia for loads of different reasons, but it is a treatment to keep in mind. So the idea of the gene therapy... Is to cure Is the cure in the form of an autologous transplant. autologous transplant. Very similar to to what we do in thalassemia patients. And is it more complicated because sickle cell patients at an earlier age will have more organ damage and be harder for them to get through it? Yes, that's one of the reasons. Okay. Yeah. Stem cell transplantation is happening. Patients with sickle cell disease can have allogeneic, like the standard stem cell transplantation procedure, and they can be cured. Now, in the UK, this curative treatment is licensed and funded by NHS England until the age of 18, and above the age of 18 is not, so we cannot offer it to our adult patients. Having said that, it is a very risky procedure as you know, so it involves toxic chemotherapy, so one has to be absolutely certain that it's recommended to patients in whom the predictable benefits outweigh the risks. So therefore, it's difficult to identify really such good patients, especially as they grow older, because they collect more complications, unfortunately, as they grow older, no matter what treatment they have received. So even if they have been on hydroxyurea from very young age, or even if they had been on regular red cell exchanges, still complications do happen as they grow older. And those complications will restrict their ability or eligibility to have um, a safe transplant. So it's, it's an issue. It's there as an option for the very well-treated, for the young patients who have a, a fully matched sibling donor. So in that cohort of patients, the stem cell transplantation as an option is not considered not sensible. It's a sensible curative option to discuss with your patients. You have to be careful not to recommend it to somebody in whom you think the risks would outweigh the benefits. And what would you say the, for our nurses listening would be the thing you would want them to monitor and keep a check on most when the patient comes in with crisis? So obviously it depends on what type of crisis they come, but some they come with. But some of the most important key messages apply to any type of crisis. So the key things is pain control. So we should never dismiss the pain that the patients describe. Pain is very subjective. So we'll have to respect the fact that every person's pain threshold is different and understanding and perception of pain is different. So pain control is absolutely important, not because, not just because we don't want our patients to suffer, obviously that's the main thing, but secondly, it's because we know that in sickle cell disease, if, they, if the pain is not well controlled, this will increase the risk of acute chest syndrome. So if they, for example, come with back pain and we don't get on top of the pain very quickly, then because of the back pain, they will not be able to take deep, deep inspirations because every time they take a deep inspiration or they you know, take a normal even inspiration, the back pain will be exacerbated. So 
with, within the next few hours of, um, of their admission, uh, it's very likely, so we don't need days or months for this to, to happen, within a, few, within a few hours, they can easily go from a, what we call a simple painful crisis into a full-blown, life-threatening acute chest syndrome because of the under-controlled pain. Nurses should be that they are the most important people involved in the care of these patients because they're all the time there. The doctors come and go. So it's very important that we get, that we communicate with each other clearly and that they, the nurses are established this relationship with the patient to be able to monitor the pain and the progress of the pain resolution. And if we're not on top, to change prescriptions, let the doctors know, etc. So pain control. Then oxygenation, so measuring the oxygen levels on air is absolutely key. So these patients are very oxygen sensitive, so they can be saturating down to 80-85% on air and you put them on one litre of oxygen and the saturations will be 95%. So us knowing that the saturations are 100% on one or two litres of oxygen, although it's encouraging, it doesn't really mean anything because they might be desaturating down to, as I said, very low levels without the oxygen. So oxygen measurements on air, it's very important. Incentive spirometry. So I keep saying to everyone, even if they come with just simple leg pain, everybody needs to be on incentive spirometry. They come in even if they come with a, with a leg pain. What are you going to give them? You're going to give them opioids. What do opioids do? They suppress the respiratory rate, they suppress the ventilation, and you don't have to have a reduced respiratory rate for this to be present. So the, you know, the respiration rate can be entirely normal, the oxygen levels can be entirely normal, but the ventilation will be shallower on opioids. And therefore, incentive spirometry, every couple of hours, 10 to 20 breaths, minimizes the risk of acute chest syndrome significantly. And, and it's scary, isn't it? Because, I mean, a patient can be deteriorating and be yeah. extremely sick, but their respirate doesn't really change. Yeah. Yeah. And their SATs aren't even that low, yeah. but they're Absolutely. actually getting really sick. And a spirometer can help yeah. actually prevent that. Yes. So, I mean, the other key message is, is yes, is the acute progression of their illness. So they come in and you think that they're reasonably stable and very often we say to them as well, you know, we predict that this is going to be a 24-hour stay with a bit of Oramorph or a bit of this and the other. And then they actually, you know, very rapidly progress into something else, usually some acute chest syndrome. Things can change rapidly within a few hours. So one has to be very vigilant. And even if you think that um, when they come in, they look okay and it's a matter of just getting a little, you know, the pain under control. Don't take your eyes off them because especially the first 24 hours are very critical. I suppose the other thing as well is that um, they, your perception, like we've talked about, of what pain should look like in someone and for a patient experiencing yeah. that, having to justify what they're going through is, is a lot and, and having to explain and yeah. maybe thinking that they're being judged Yes. Is, is a really yes. awful thing for a very unwell patient to be yes. in the hospital with. So it's very difficult to find the balance of und between under-treating the patient and over-treating us. Really what we tend to do in very many cases, we usually under-treat at the beginning and then we escalate treatment later on, whereas it should be the other way around. So we should tackle the pain upfront as they come in, obviously depending on each patient's characteristics and 
opioid tolerance situation and all that. But that's why our patients have patient key records because we review the situations in clinic and during admission. So the message is that we should tackle the pain in the first 24 hours as much as we can with as aggressively as we can and then tailor treatment down. That's the key to a short admission without complications rather than the other way around. We start gently and yeah, then, yeah, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. tell patients, right, if that doesn't work, then we'll do that. I mean, at some point during admission, you can't force a huge dose of opioids into somebody as they come in because you run the risk of complications. But in very many cases that I have come across with, there could have been a better strategy when they came in. I suppose they come in at night and at weekends as well, which makes it a bit yeah, that makes trickier it with more people that don't know them yeah. Yeah. that well. But the yeah. All the patient care records should be up to date. Sometimes they're not because they are updated as the patients come to clinics or as they are admitted. So it's important that we keep an eye on the patient key record. It's important that the nurses and the doctors know where the patient key records are, but it's equally important to ensure that what they're reading is up to date so you could and take it with a pinch of salt. So if you saw something that was a long time ago, a year ago, you question would, it. You would question, question it. it. That's, that's good to know. Yeah. I'm very aware of the time. Yeah. I did want to ask one question. Okay. <laughs> Why do sickle cell patients have so many hemolytic anemias? Mm. So the sickle cells, obviously they're fragile cells as well. This blood disorder is associated with hemolytic anemia on the background. So all the sickle cell patients will be hemolyzing their red cells at a certain rate all the time. And some of them will be just because the cells are not healthy, they are fragile, they break down. Some patients will be hemolyzing much more than others, and the reason is unclear. We know that there are a lot of other factors, either genetic factors or environmental factors, which affect the severity of the sickle cell disease in general, including the severity of the background hemolysis. So we have patients who have steady-state baseline hemoglobin is about 60, so these are the, the ones who hemolyze chronically, much more than others who might have... So it's less a production issue, more the speed of breakdown? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not a production issue. So they have no issue with their bone marrow production. So the erythropoiesis, so the blood making, is absolutely fine. But the type of hemoglobin and cells, red cells, they produce is abnormal. And that leads to early destruction of the red cells, early death. So usually the red cells leave for 120 days after being produced in the bone marrow. But in sickle cell disease, they live much less. Uh, they're fragile because of the abnormal hemoglobin molecule that is produced as a consequence of the genetic defect. And some patients will have an acute hemolytic crisis. They will all hemolyze on the background, but some of them will very often have an acute episode of hemolysis on top of their chronic hemolysis. For example, if they run a hemoglobin of 60-70, they might come in acutely unwell with a hemoglobin of 30-35-40 in view of a sudden onset hemolysis on the background of their chronic hemolysis. And usually this happens in the presence of certain trigger factors, usually when they have an infection, and, and sometimes with no reason. But then you have but maybe we're going to go into too much detail. I mean, a lot of our patients have, as I said, 
they're on regular blood transfusions or they might come in and have a blood transfusion or an exchange because they're acutely unwell and then they might come in they might go home much better after this treatment but they might return with an acute hemolytic crisis which could be the result of the blood transfusion which is what we call acute hemolytic transfusion reaction or delayed hemolytic transfusion reaction. Mm. So there are a lot of different reasons why the sequence of patients can hemolyze acutely more than what they would do normally. And this can make them really, really unwell. Thank you very much. Perfect. Thank so you, Thank you. Yeah? a yeah. few times. We've got to let you go, yeah. <laughs>